Uh, Please turn in your Bible to Colossians. Uh, Again, chapter 3, picking up where we left off last week. And this Sunday, we're going to be looking at Colossians 3, verses 12 to 14. And the title I've given to this morning's message is The Christian's New Wardrobe. The Christian's New Wardrobe. So let me start with a question. You don't have to answer here and now, but how are you at keeping up with fashion and knowing what to wear? How are you at keeping up with fashion and knowing what to wear? Now, looking out, I'm guessing some of us more than others. But then who am I to judge? Because I haven't got a clue. I gave up trying, if I ever did try, many, many years ago. I feel especially lost at the moment on the subject of trousers. Uh, Each time I go to buy a new pair of jeans, I can't work out which shapes uh, are in and out. What am I supposed to buy? Now, I was never going to buy into the skinny jean look. Um, Just doesn't look comfortable, and the last thing I need is to look even more like a stick insect. (laughs) But I'm not sure skinny are even in anymore. Is that right? Or is it skinny in one part and not in another? I just don't know. I don't know. And one more question before we get on to more uh, important things. Um, Why is it that trousers that don't go down and cover your ankles are no cheaper than the ones that do? I'm into getting my money's worth, so keeping my ankles covered. Okay, so I've given up worrying about fashion, as you can tell. But our culture loves to focus on fashion and what to wear, on what will make you look good, on what will make you look like the person that you would like to be or that you'd like to project that you are. But what's striking and so hollow about clothing fashions is just how often it changes. There used to be a program on TV in the early 2000s. I mentioned this to the Life Group uh, quite recently, and none of them had heard of it, which shows their age and mine. Uh, But it was called What Not to Wear. Anyone remember? Trini and Susanna? No. Some of us were alive but just weren't watching this kind of TV. Uh, But Trini and Susanna gave bold and confident fashion advice about what you should and shouldn't wear based on all sorts of things about your hair and your your shape and your weight and your body type. And it was supposedly the yardstick against which to measure whether your clothes were in fashion or out of fashion. And uh, along with humorous encouragements that they made to those appearing on the show, and I just picked up one because I thought this was great, uh, the time that they were trying to transform a vicar's wardrobe, and they opened the program by saying to him, just because you wear a dog collar during the day doesn't give you the excuse to look like a dog's dinner at night. (laughs) But the funniest thing now, though, is that there are all sorts of articles and Instagram groups and YouTube videos dedicated to laughing at how out of fashion the advice was now that Trini and Susanna were giving all those years ago. The truth is, clothing fashions are constantly changing. There's no substance or stability to them. They're all about just trying to get money out of our pockets. What a relief then to open God's word and find that in a world of ever-changing fashions, the clothing God lays out for his people to wear does not change. The character virtues that suit and fit every Christian remain the same. The believer's wardrobe is timeless because God doesn't change. His perfect, holy, and loving character forever remains the same, and he has made it his goal to restore in us his image. Now, last week we heard about uh, some of the old behaviors 
associated with our old selves, which we're now to put off and put away. But to only do that and nothing more would, of course, leave us metaphorically naked. To only focus on what we ought not to do would be as foolish as that that well-known emperor who took off all his old clothes, put on some imaginary ones, and then proceeded to parade around with nothing on. It sounds kind of silly, but for a lot of religious people, what you take off and don't do anymore as a Christian is pretty much all they think the Christian life is about. But that's not Paul's message. That's not God's plan for us. That's not the Christian's new wardrobe. And so this week and next week, we're going to focus on what it is that Christians are meant to put on, on what new character traits and behaviors we ought to be clothing ourselves in. This week, the focus is going to be on what we should put on as individual Christians, especially as we relate to other people. And then next week, the focus is going to be on the things that we should put on together as a church in our life together. So, Uh, Without further ado, let's find out what Christians ought to wear. Colossians 3, verses 12 to 14. Put on then, as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other, as the Lord has forgiven you so you also must forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. Now, it seems to me here that Paul sets out for us three new sections in every Christian's spiritual wardrobe. He sets out a new identity, a new character, and a new conduct. So those are our three headings for this morning. New identity, a new character, and a new conduct. He begins with our new identity. Now, the reason Paul starts here with our identity is because knowing how we're positively to be and behave begins, first of all, with knowing who we've already become. It begins with truly understanding our new identity in Christ. And we've seen a hugely important part of that new identity over the last few weeks, that if we've put our trust in the saving person and work of Christ, then we have already died with him and been raised to new life with him. We are eternally secure in him, and one day we will appear with him in glory. And even now, as we saw last week, having put off the old self and put on the new self, we're in this process of being renewed in the image of our creator. That's what has happened to us, will happen to us, and is happening to us. But a question that hasn't been addressed, at least not recently, is who are we now to God? What are we to him personally? Where do we stand in relation to God himself? Has he saved us and raised us just as some kind of side project, like a, like a hobby that he's, he's only vaguely interested in, but his heart's not really invested in? If we have to know who we are in order to know what we should wear, then knowing who we are to God is one of the most important questions of all. How kind then of God in verse 12 to tell us exactly where we now stand and who we now are in relation to him, especially when what he says here is so utterly extraordinary. Because it says here plainly and clearly that every day ordinary Christians, you and me, 
are nothing less than God's chosen ones, holy and beloved. God is the creator and sustainer of everyone and everything, yet among all of the people on the face of the earth, those who know and trust Jesus are God's chosen ones, chosen in Christ before the very foundation of the world. Not only are we chosen, Paul says, we are holy. We have been set apart for him and wholly accepted by him, yet not because of any good thing in us. Quite the opposite. We have We have no holiness and no righteousness of our own, as we've been singing this morning. But God has clothed us in the righteousness of another. He has clothed us in the righteousness of his perfect, spotless son. We are chosen, we are holy, and perhaps most incredibly of all, Paul here says we are beloved. Every single believer is the object of God's special love. We are dearly loved. However we might feel about ourselves, however great the weight of our sins and our failings, if our faith is in Christ, we can be utterly certain, not only that we're forgiven, but that God loves us beyond measure, that we are beloved to an unfathomable degree, and he has demonstrated his great love for us in the death of his Son. 1 John 4, verse 9 and 10. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only Son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his Son to be the propitiation for our sins. This morning, weary, worn down, worried Christian, you are dearly loved by God himself. And his love for you doesn't depend on how you're feeling or how well you're doing. His love never has and never will depend on your merit or worth. He didn't send Christ to die for you because he thought you were worth it. That would be incredibly shaky ground for us to be standing on. But no, praise God. He sent Christ to die for you and I simply because... He loves us. And so today and tomorrow and forevermore, come what may, this here is our new, irreversible, everlasting identity, chosen, holy, and beloved by God. Just imagine walking through life with that, those credentials actually kind of maybe printed on your passport or laid out on your business card if you have a business card. And yet they might as well be. Because this is who we truly are in Christ. And there is no more privileged status than this in all of the universe. Whatever our aspirations are in life, whatever our hopes and dreams might be for the future, for the things we might be or become or do, all of that pales into this hazy insignificance compared to this identity that is already ours in Christ. We are chosen holy and beloved by God. Unless we uh, perhaps still just are underestimating the significance of those three titles, here's one more thing to consider. Not only were they the very titles that God used of Israel in the Old Testament to mark them out as his special people and possession, but even more amazingly, they're also the very terms that God used to describe his son, Christ 
was God's chosen one, Luke 23. He was God's holy one, Mark chapter 1. And he was my son whom I love, Matthew 3. These three terms describe God's unparalleled delight in his son. And here we are being addressed in these very same terms with no less love and affection. It's this reminder of our new identity, this glorious identity, that Paul clearly believes is the very best motivation, the very best encouragement to do what he now exhorts us to do, coming up next, to put on the new character, to clothe ourselves in the character of God's Son, knowing who we are in Christ compels us and fuels us and empowers us to now put on his character. And so that's where Paul goes next. Our second heading this morning, our new character. Now, if you can remember as far back as last week, we, we, we saw two sets of five traits to put off. Here we're given one set of five virtues to put on. And the contrast between last week and this week could not be more striking. While the sins listed last week were grim and repulsive, it was like when you go and turn some stone over in the garden and you find all these horrible, rotting, slimy things underneath. This time, the list could not be more delightful and attractive, especially to the Christian. Look again at verse 12. And we're going to spend the majority of our time here in verse 12. So don't panic if we've been here a while and you're wondering how we're going to do the rest but I really want to hone in on these, these, uh, this particular verse. Verse 12, Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience. What a wardrobe that is. What a, what a glorious array of, array of character qualities these are. And the first thing to notice about them is that they are, in essence, a description of, of the character of the Lord Jesus himself, which would explain why this list is so appealing. For in them we see his portrait. Paul then is doing nothing less than encouraging us to put on the very attributes of our Saviour whom we love. Like last week, I just think it's, not, it's good for us not to rush over them. Let's pick them up and examine them one by one. First of all, Paul says, put on compassionate hearts. Now, this speaks of putting on a heartfelt sympathy for those who are suffering or in need, of putting on a heart that is moved deeply by the pain and the heartache of other people. The story is told of General William Booth, the founder of the Salvation Army, and the day that Queen Victoria of England went to meet him. Uh, because she'd heard so many favorable things about his work in the slums, she asked him for the secret of his success. And this was his reply. Your majesty, he replied, some men have a passion for money. Some people have a passion for things. I have a passion for people. Compassion is exactly that. It is a passion for other people and their needs. It's a tender heart rather than a hard heart. A heart of flesh rather than a heart of stone. It's not driven by talk of laws and rights and you get what you deserve. Instead, it's, been, it's a heart that's been irreversibly softened and melted, sensitized to the needs of others. A heart that's been melted by the warmth of God's mercy and grace. 
And Jesus, of course, had the perfect example of a compassionate heart. Again and again, we read of him in the Gospels. We read of him being deeply moved with compassion for those that he meets, for the hungry and for the sick, for widows and the grieving, for the outcast and the sinner and the lost. Matthew 9, 36, just one great example. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion on them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. It was compassion that the Good Samaritan felt for the man he found beaten on the roadside. It was compassion that the father felt for his prodigal son when he looked out and saw him at long last coming home. A compassionate heart is one that's deeply moved by the needs of other people. And then kindness, which is the second trait Paul lists, is the act of putting that compassion into action. Kindness, writes one commentator, Max Anders, kindness is the friendly and helpful spirit which meets needs through good deeds. I like that. It rhymes and so it appeals to me. I can remember it. It meets needs through good deeds. That's what kindness is. It is ready to do good to all, whether or not they deserve it. According to Romans 2, it is God's kindness that led us to repentance. And as Paul writes in Titus 3, verse 4 and 5, when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us. Not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy. There is then something irresistibly attractive about kindness. Kindness mellows and sweetens a whole a person's whole character and demeanor as they go out of their way to give to others and do them good. In fact, this, the underlying term was, was often used, or at least sometimes used, to describe a wine which had mellowed with age and had lost its harshness. And that, again, is something distinctly attractive and winsome in a person. The great Christian leader of the fourth century, maybe you've heard of him, Augustine, was said to have been won to Christ through the preaching of Bishop Ambrose. But it wasn't Ambrose's preaching that first attracted him. No, he says it was his irresistible kindness that first drew him. And it was the same kindness that Jesus spoke of in his invitation to the weary and heavy laden when he said, come to me and I will give you rest. Matthew 11, verse 30, he says, My yoke is easy, and that word is this same word, kind. My yoke is kind, and my burden is light. Compassionate and kind. Then the next trait we're called to clothe ourselves in is humility. Humility, which is, of course, the very opposite of pride. Humility is like the antidote to self-love and self-exaltation. It's the willingness to not think of ourselves more highly than we ought, but rather to think of ourselves with sober judgment. Romans 12, verse 3. Humility is to have a proper estimation of ourselves. Just have a realistic view of ourselves. As someone once put it, to know who God is, to know who man is, and to know who we are. And humility, when it's put on and worn, is most often demonstrated, I think, in sacrificial service. Because rather than trying to assert our own needs or go after what we want, we're putting the needs of others before ourselves. That's humility. Once again, Jesus was the perfect embodiment of this, which is actually 
remarkable when you think about who he was. He alone was worthy of all honor and all service and all glory. But Mark 10.45, even he came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And now, like his first disciples, we in turn are called to follow him by clothing ourselves in humility, just as he did. More, in fact, I think, than any of these other traits, humility also comes with a repeated promise. All throughout the Bible, it's woven through. Uh, the Apostle Peter is just uh, one person who captures it. Perhaps thinking back on that time when Jesus said to him, I came not to be served, but to serve. Now Peter in uh, chapter 5, verse 5 says, Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another. And here's the promise. For God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. So this is a bit of clothing that comes with a promise. Compassion, kindness, humility, and then the next article of clothing in the Christian's new wardrobe is meekness. Another word for this might be gentleness. Now, meekness or gentleness, I think, often get a bad rap, partly because it's, it's sometimes misunderstood as something that's spineless and lily-livered and weak, but that really couldn't be further from the truth. Moses was described in Numbers 12 as the meekest man on the face of the earth at that time. And yet there was nothing about Moses that was lily-livered or weak. He stood up to Pharaoh. He was the mighty leader of God's people. He obeyed God at the risk of his own life. He led them out of slavery and all through their wanderings in the wilderness. Meekness is actually best understood as strength brought under control. Strength brought under control. It was sometimes used to describe the taming and the bridling of wild horses. Uh, if you think about it, a, a tamed horse is no less powerful than a wild horse. In fact, once it's tamed and instilled with meekness, its power becomes all the more focused and effective. Or um, if you're not so much into horses, think about superhero movies, particularly the, um, each of the hero's origin stories. They often begin with someone discovering that they've got great strength, they've got special powers. But before they can use their powers for the good of others, they first have to spend time learning to bring that new strength under control. They are, in effect, learning meekness. They're mastering and harnessing their power for good. Or another picture of meekness would be the strong arms of a mother cradling her newborn so securely and yet at the same time so delicately and gently in her arms. Or that of a father taking the hand of their toddler as they cross the road, knowing just how much pressure to apply to grip that little hand so as to hold them utterly secure and yet not cause them the slightest concern or discomfort. That's meekness, strength under control. That's Christ-like meekness, a steel-like strength that applies itself with the utmost gentleness in the lives of other people, even when it means bearing with their burdens, bearing their burdens, or enduring their sin. In fact, it's precisely when meekness in us meets with the frailty of others, or when it meets even more with the sin in others, that Paul's final virtue, patience, really comes prominently into play. 
So the fifth and final one he gives us here is patience. Patience is the, is the opposite of resentment and frustration, of anger and revenge. It's a willingness to suffer and be wronged. It's a, a, a willingness to bear with people, coupled with a desire to positively extend grace and mercy and kindness in the face of their weakness and their sin. It's another fruit of the Holy Spirit. And once again, once, you know what I'm going to say? The perfect picture of patience is found in Jesus himself. In 1 Timothy 1.16, Paul describes Jesus as having displayed perfect patience in the life of the very worst sinner that Paul knew, which was Paul himself. And yet, I think many of us would argue that we know ourselves a worse sinner. We know the worst of sinners there could ever be, and we feel like that's, I suspect, each of us. We think to ourselves sometimes, if anyone might finally hit the buffers or go beyond the limits of Jesus' patience, it would be us. And yet, his perfect patience has been proven again and again. Proven to be without limit and without end. How else could any of us be saved and sat here this morning celebrating the mercy of God to us? I know how aware we are of our own sin and how tempted we are to think that God couldn't possibly be patient enough to work with us. And yet his perfect patience has been displayed already in your life and my life because he has saved us and brought us to himself. His patience never ends. It will not run out. And so now we are called to clothe ourselves with that same patience towards others. So this list then, as someone once described it, is, is, is heaven's wardrobe from the hand of the ultimate tailor. This is heaven's wardrobe from the hand of the ultimate tailor. All of these glorious, radiant character traits, so perfectly worn and still worn by Christ, now as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, and raised to new life in Christ, we in turn are called to the honour of wearing these garments as well. Yet how hard, can it, how hard it can be to put these new character traits on and keep them on. It's difficult, isn't it? It's so difficult to put on these traits, especially, especially when we're expected to wear them not just in private, but in public as well. Perhaps you've sometimes had the thought like me, I, I'm sure I could be far more compassionate and kind and humble and meek and patient if only I, I didn't have to spend so much time with other people. It's other people who light my fuse and they, they make me ruin my holy garments. They make me ruin them like I'm the Incredible Hulk, you know, tearing through them, tearing through an, another newly buttoned up shirt. You're making me angry. Don't make me angry. If only I could live in my own little cave somewhere, I'm sure I could wear these garments every day. And yet we know deep down that's not how it works. We know that all these garments are in fact given specifically for community, for relationships. These things can only really be put on and worn in the messiness of real relationships. The truth is the very thing that will help us as well to grow in these Christ-like character traits 
and become better at putting them on again and again is the blood, the sweat, the tears, and the joys of living together as real Christians in real community. So let's, let's finally ask the question this morning, what do you get when you put all of these character traits together? What do they produce in practice? So we've, we've touched a little bit on how these might get outworked, but, but, but put them all, all together. What does it produce? Reading these verses from Paul is a bit like watching a world-class chef at work, and we've sort of seen him chopping and laying out all of the ingredients in verse 12, but, but now we look on with, with bated breath, and maybe with a growing appetite as well, to see what kind of meal will finally be produced. What happens when you throw all of these character traits into a pan and you put them into the oven of church life together? Well, in verse 13, Paul, I think in a way if you can run with me on this, is describing the resulting signature dish of Christians who clothe themselves in this new heavenly wardrobe. Here, he says, is our new conduct. So that's our third heading for this morning. Our new conduct, verse 13. Here's the final product. Bearing with one another. And if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other. As the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. And that, I think, is pretty staggering. One writer, John Woodhouse, says it is an astounding proposition that the characteristic behavior of the most privileged people in the world, that's us, the chosen people of God, no less, should be no more impressive than putting up with each other and forgiving each other. Not giving up on one another and not holding grievances against one another. The church, we rightly believe, because of the grace of God, is the most revolutionary, countercultural, beautiful community on earth. And maybe someone might say to us, Oh, is that right? Well, tell me. That sounds amazing. Tell me, what is it that makes the church stand out as so different, so radical in the way that people live their lives together there? Well, we respond, it's quite simple, really. We're a bunch of sinners who bear with one another. We don't get frustrated with each other's weaknesses. We don't get annoyed by each other's quirks or failings. And if one has a complaint against another, we don't fall out or move churches or backbite or slander. We strive to forgive each other. That's the beautiful gourmet gospel meal that gets cooked up and served from all of these ingredients. That's, that's, the full, that's the full wardrobe on display, what it looks like when those, when those character traits, those qualities go out into the life of a real church. There's nowhere else like it in all the world. That's what makes the church such a radical, supernatural, life-changing culture to be a part of. Gracious forbearance and forgiveness. That's it. That's one of the key beauties of the church. It's a picture of the gospel of God's grace. A community of sinful and flawed and broken people who have died and been raised with Christ, displaying now, as Ephesians reminds us, before men and angels, the wisdom and the mercy the kindness and the patience of God in saving undeserving sinners such as us. 
The church is a community of the forgiven, made up of people who in turn love to pass on that forgiveness. As the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. That's what Paul says. And and the special verb that he uses here for forgive speaks elsewhere of completely cancelling a debt. Reminding us that just as God has already completely cancelled our infinitely great debt of sin that stood against us, nailing it to the cross, so now we're to cancel all of those finite debts, however weighty they might be, of those who sin against us. And then we're just to keep going on. Forgiving and forgiving and forgiving. Peter once asked Jesus, Lord, how many times shall I forgive my brother or sister who sins against me? Up to seven times? And Jesus answered, I tell you, not seven times, but 77 times. Meaning we must go on forgiving each other without wearying and without ceasing. We're to imitate and pass on the forgiveness that we ourselves have received from Jesus, letting go of every wrong that others have done to us. What has flowed out to us from Calvary is to flow through us and out from us into the lives of other people. That's what it looks like to have put on the new self with all of its Christ-like character and conduct. And it will be a spectacle full of divine beauty and Christ-glorifying power. And it's also, forgiving others is also immensely freeing and ennobling. And I, I had to share with you this morning these, these words from Spurgeon I came across. Um, I feel like we share Spurgeon quotes a little too much, and so I've kind of got a, an extra harsh filter now, which is it's got to be really good to include it. Uh, but this, I think, is really good. He says, We are not asked to perform a duty here which will in the least degrade us. Revenge is paltry. Forgiveness is great-minded. Was not David infinitely greater than Saul when he spared his life in the cave and when he would not smite him as he lay asleep on the battlefield? Did not the king humble himself before David when he perceived his forbearance? If you would be the greatest among men, bear injuries with the greatest gentleness. If you would win the noblest of conquests, subdue yourself To win a battle is a little thing if it be fought out with sword and gun, but to win it in God's way, with no weapons but love and patience and forgiveness, this is the most glorious of victories. Blessed is that man who is more than a conqueror, because he inflicts no wounds in the conflict, but overcomes evil with good. In the process of such a conquest, the warrior is himself a gainer, A nation in fighting, even if it wins the campaign, has to suffer great expense and loss of life. But he that overcomes by love is the better and stronger man through what he has done. He comes out of the conflict not only victor over his adversary, but victor over sin within himself, and all the readier for future war against evil. He glorifies God and himself becomes strong in grace. Nothing is more glorious than love. Your master, who is king of kings, set you an example of gaining glory by enduring wrong. If you would be knights of his company, imitate his graciousness. And finally, to conclude it all, Paul, having laid out our whole new wardrobe, 
exhorts us and the Colossians to put on love. Above all these, he says, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. So this, this is kind of the wrap-up. This is the, the, the grand conclusion. Love, he says, is the thing that binds all these other traits together. It's like the, the belt or the buttons on your clothes that stops them blowing away the first moment there's a breeze. That would be a, an embarrassing thing at the very least, wouldn't it, if that happened? But a terrible thing as well. But love binds these traits to us. It reminds me of Paul's words in uh, 1 Corinthians 13 where he tells the church they might have all manner of impressive spiritual gifts, but unless they have love, they gain nothing. These things are useless. I think Paul is saying something similar here. He's saying it's possible in one sense to put on some of these character traits of the new self and, uh, and maybe to practice them in some sort of cold and robotic and moralistic fashion. It's possible to do that, to put them on without love. We might imitate, at least to a degree, the words and the actions of someone who's compassionate and kind and patient and forgiving. We may even speak in terms of forgiving those who've sinned against us. But if we have not love, then we're not really doing these things from the heart. We're not really putting on Christ-like character. And Christ-like conduct, because all that Christ did was in love. All of his other virtues were crowned with love. All of his actions were motivated and fueled by love. Love is like the, um, it's like the finest lubricating oil to pour onto the rusty cogs of our hearts and get them moving in the right direction. When we put on love, All these other virtues and behaviors begin to flow much more freely and easily and naturally. So in a sense, if we're feeling very challenged by some of these, or all of these character qualities and and, and virtues this morning, the place to start is to put on love, to pour more love into our hearts. It's no coincidence that it becomes far easier to be patient and kind and forgiving when our hearts are full of genuine, affectionate love for the person that we're interacting with. Don't you find that so much easier to be gracious, to be kind, to be patient to someone you, you already love? That's not a coincidence. Love, by its very nature, is all of these other things. And so 1 Corinthians 13, Paul continues. He says, love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never ends. And so Paul is saying, love is to be worn in all circumstances, at all times, towards all people, especially in the family of God. Love binds all these other virtues together in perfect harmony. And it also binds the people of God together in perfect harmony as well. We're going to get to a bit more of that next week. But love binds us together in peace with one another. Now, none of this comes easily to us. In fact, none of it comes naturally. But God is at work in us supernaturally. His Holy Spirit is already within us, 
cultivating and growing these very fruits that we've been, these very clothes that we've been exploring this morning. Allowing us to say, as Paul did earlier, for these things we toil, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. And even as we heed this call together as a church to go on putting these things on, God reminds us that we do so, remember, as those who are already his chosen ones, holy and beloved in Christ. We love because he first loved us. Let's pray.